you send in your questions, and we're um, working on them. What do you think, Nate? Thinks? Nate could probably do it. Nate, what do you think? Nate. 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 We received hundreds of questions, like a ton of questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do I know God's will for my life? What happened to all the dinosaurs? Should I marry Fred? Do all roads lead to God? How can I forgive my dad? Can I watch the ravens play in heaven? How do I get my husband to put the toilet seat down? Do the pastors ever disagree with each other? We don't have all the answers, but today we will tackle a few of your questions. Why? Because you asked for it. Hey, Mountain. How's everybody? At all our campuses, hello. You asked for it. All right? You asked for it. So we're throwing in these questions, and we're doing our best to try to get at one or two of them every time we get together. And uh, if you don't like what you hear, you asked for it. All right? Um, so we're not trying to gather information so we can be smarty pants. We're not trying to um, get all the answers so we can put it away and stop worrying about things. We're really seeking wisdom. That's different, isn't it? We're seeking to know the mind of God. James 1.5 is kind of an anchor verse for us, which just says, you know, if any of you is deficient in wisdom on anything, you still have unanswered questions, well, ask God. Let's go ask God who gives generously to all without reprimand. He, he doesn't say, well, shame on you for not knowing. He wants us to come with our questions. And so we come. And if there's any area that makes us feel like, man, we need need answers or help from outside our own puny brains, it's when we begin to ask questions about the beginning of time, creation and origins, and how the world actually works and God's involvement in it, and the end times, and how things are going to come down at the end, and there were lots of questions about all of that, and so we're just going to tackle all of it from beginning to end. Um, what happened at creation? How can we know? How is God involved in the world? Are science and religious faith compatible or are they in contradiction and what about all those prophecies and end times how do we know we got to cover everything from genesis to revelation today so we better get started all right and and the place you get started in your bible if you open it to the very first page the very first words of the very first book and the very first chapter start this way let's read it together genesis which means beginnings one one ready read it with me in the beginning God, stop there. I think um, we're going we're gonna to get to the book of Revelation later, but this is Revelation. God is revealing something important, and right here, at the very beginning, God is there. It says he created the heavens and the earth. Everything that is, this is a, such a fundamental and foundational belief for all of us, isn't it? That God is the creator of everything, sun, planet, stars, Fish, birds, even cats, even humans, and humans who like cats. It's the most important foundational belief. Now, as we build on that, we want to go to the Bible, we want to learn more about this stuff. Here we have to immediately remind ourselves of something very important and give ourselves, I would say, almost like a caution to be careful and smart about how we use the Bible to understand these things. Because we have to be careful that even though the Bible is God's word to us, it's personally speaking to me in powerful ways as we talked about last week. We have to remember it wasn't written to us. Genesis was written to Israel, which means we have to understand the culture, the language, the customs, the time, and the worldview that this was written to because God wrote it in a way they would understand perfectly. 
And so we have to respect and understand uh, the world of the Bible and be careful, therefore, about imposing our modern worldview on the Bible as if the Bible wants to sort of speak to us in that way. So, for example, we all live after the 17th century when something called the scientific revolution changed the way we all think and talk. We're all children of the scientific revolution. We don't even realize it, but we think with a scientific worldview. When you get a headache, science is what explains things. It can break things down and talk about the material, physical world and explain things. You get a headache, I might pray for you. You might pray for yourself, but you also might take an Advil because you accept as commonplace that, you know what, that might be something that could help. If you get an infection, I might pray for you, but you might also take amoxicillin because of the way the body is put together, you realize that certain things like that might be necessary or helpful. The, a rainbow in the time of Noah, the Bible says it's a, it's a sign that God put in the sky as a reminder of his covenant loyalty and faithfulness. Eventually, after the scientific mindset came along, we realized that the, the rainbow is, can also be explained as um, little droplets of water refracting light and breaking it down into the spectrum, the prisms that we see, the, the beautiful red, orange, yellow, and so forth. Does this mean, because we can explain the way that light works, that God is no longer faithful or present or the maker of rainbows? And how do we go to the Bible? Do we... Go to the Bible to find information about the refraction of light? And if it doesn't talk about the way light refracts into prisms, does it mean the Bible's wrong or superficial or silly or primitive? So this is important, you see. That we not drag our scientific questions, even about origins, to the Bible because that's not what the Bible's for. It's not like God wasn't smart enough to put it in if he wanted to. It's just that he was trying to communicate to people that weren't asking those questions. And so for us to be able to hear God's living word for us today, we have to respect what it was originally saying. Looking at Genesis 1 and 2, for example, and primarily seeing it as seeking information about the science of origins and information about the material universe and the history of the world is a little bit like walking into a play halfway through and sitting down and wondering what in the world's going on and then asking that set design, is it made of cardboard or plywood? And who painted it? And what kind of paint was used? And when were the costumes sewn? Now, those might be interesting questions, and we've been trained to think those are really important questions, and maybe they are, but maybe another question is, what's going on? What did I miss? What's the plot? Tell me the story about the play. And Genesis, you see, is about the plot of life. It's about the story of the world and the cosmos and your place and my place and all of our place in it. It's not about the materials that God used and the processes and how long it took him. Those are the questions of science. But Genesis isn't a science book. So in, sh in short, science asks what and how. What happened and how can we figure it out? And Genesis tells us rather who? Who's in charge? Who did this? Who's behind it all? And why? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? And those are very different questions. So we have to take the Bible on its own terms and trust this beautiful way that God created. In fact, Genesis 1-2 says that 
Genesis 1-2 says the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. You get this swirling mass of whatever's going on and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You Be careful about breaking that down and trying to figure out exactly where's the big bang and that and all that. You, you know, you, it's very difficult to do. What it's saying is when, God said, it, when the Bible says God created, it's reminding us that it's not saying He manufactured something and here's how it happened. It's speaking of Him assigning purpose and function and order to something that was chaotic and disordered and non-functional. Hovering over the chaotic disorder, God spoke and brings order, pulls it together, and voila. We don't have an eyewitness account of something that happened. We have a report that God is eternal and was there and made it. And we'll have to take our questions about how and when and what kind of materials he used and just, first of all, accept that God is the creator, the cause behind everything and the designer and the beauty of the beauty and the order of all that is and leave it to science to figure out some of the material and physical stuff. And when science does come up with some explanation, some discovery, some part of the natural world that's new and amazing, we can say, great, that helps me appreciate the handiwork of God even more. And if you're talking to a skeptic who, who makes you feel like you're supposed to fear that they're going to come up with some new discovery that's going to pull a thread, that's going to unravel the whole fabric of the faith, <laughs> you don't have to worry about that at all. And that's why many of the most prominent scientists in the world are Christians today. And if someone says, aha, we discovered some new process that we didn't know about before, some new system, and it's not even in the Bible, and you can say, aha, there's no reason God couldn't have been the, behind that process and involved in the whole thing all along anyway. In fact, if it's so complex that it took you this long to figure it out, maybe that suggests there's a bigger mind somewhere at work. Believing the Bible doesn't mean you can't believe the best science in the world. And... Being a great scientist doesn't mean you can't believe in God or trust His Scriptures. Because, friends, all truth is God's truth. You don't have to be afraid of any of it. You don't have to run away from any of it. All truth is God's truth. And so we don't need to fear. There are so many resources I'd love to share with you. I won't take time to go through these books. We'll put them on our website. Um, read a bunch of these, and they're very helpful to have as you kind of sort through some of these big and complex questions. They can help us with things like, um, I've heard it said that science and religion then are in conflict. Aren't they incompatible? I got so much help from guys like Stephen Barr, who's a PhD from Princeton, teaches at the University of Delaware, um, particle physics guy uh, in cosmology, teaches in the astronomy and physics department up there, and Kenneth Miller, professor of biology, who says, you know, he's, he's an active Christian who says his worldview if you try to make science prove religion, eh, it doesn't work so well. If you try to make religion be made scientific, it doesn't work so well. But he says, that as a Christian, my Christian worldview allows me to embrace all of the discoveries and advances of scientific knowledge. And I don't have to run from them or be frightened by them. Stephen Barr says that, you know, I like the, the fact that science and religion go together so well because they're both based on the idea that the world makes sense and that we can make sense of the world. He goes on to describe, I won't have time to tell you here, but um, all of the ways that uh, Western science actually grew up out of people of faith. It was all the early scientists saw that they were doing God's work when they began the scientific revolution. And 
the further science advances and the more we learn about the intricacies and the amazing world we live in, the far grander and expansive view we have of God. God isn't squeezed out, He's enhanced. And that's why all of the big hitters, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Descartes, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, Isaac Newton, all of, none of them thought they were somehow disproving God, but all of them saw their work as showing beauty in God's creation. Now, what about Richard Dawkins? What about this Richard Dawkins guy? Here's a picture of Richard Dawkins. Raise your hand if you've heard of him. A lot of us probably has. He's been very, very famous and written a lot of books. He's a really smart guy from Oxford. And he's, a, he's a pretty decent scientist most of the time. But um, he, he has ventured into another area where he's kind of started talking about religion. His basic belief is one of scientific materialism, which is a kind of religion in a sense. So he's a scientist, but he goes a little beyond science. He says that all things that are knowable must be empirically proven through science. And if you can't prove it through science, it's not real, therefore not important. And in fact, if you believe in things that can't be proven through science, then you're sort of a naive, silly, superstitious person. Here's a quote from uh, Richard Dawkins. Religion is capable of driving people to such dangerous folly that faith seems to me to qualify as a kind of mental illness. Now, some of you are people of faith, so this would explain a few things. Here's another quote from Richard Dawkins. If this book works as I intend, this is his book called The God Delusion, uh, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. His belief is that if you really use your mind well, it's going to lead to a militant sort of anti-religious stance. He feels that many Christians have not respected science and uh, so forth, this kind of thing. And there's lots we could talk about that. Um, and by the way, many of his colleagues who are not believers in God have no antagonism toward religion. They understand that there's scientists who have religious worldviews who are very good scientists. But he seems to have this view, and others are like him as well. Is he right? Is Dawkins right? If you follow science, it will ultimately lead to atheism? We have to remember that what Dawkins does here, and many others is moves beyond the realm of science to make these kinds of declarations. Science says, here's something that we test and prove. What he does is starts with an assumption. Religion is bad, and it doesn't make any sense and isn't important. And then he argues for it and concludes where he started. That's not good science. What he's moved into is the metaphysical. He has a philosophy. He has a religion. It's dogma. It's preaching his atheism in a way that you might preach your Christianity, not based on science, but on a belief. And anyone's entitled to your philosophy, and he's entitled to his, but to pretend that it's based on science is just silly, naive, or dishonest. So I don't want to argue with Dawkins about science, but we can't pretend that um, he's speaking with authority when he speaks about religion. I'll mention one name here, Alistair McGrath, also an atheist, also studied at Oxford, also a PhD in science, a molecular bio, biophysicist, who looked at the same data of the same universe that Dawkins looked at, who came to the opposite conclusion, became a Christian, and has written a book to completely dismantle um, a lot of what Dawkins has talked about, and just show that um, a lot of the things that, that Dawkins is saying are based on a misunderstanding of what Christianity actually believes in the first place. So is it true you can't be a real scientist if you reject belief in God? Not at all. Not at all. Now, I've also heard it said that some Christians think they have to reject science. Be careful of science. Filter science. Be, be scared to death of science to really embrace the faith. Is that true? No, it's not true either. Not true at all. 
In fact, it's not been true in the history of faith, and a lot has been made out as if there's some big conflict. That's really a recent phenomenon that's been talked about by guys like Dawkins and others. So much confusion can be cleared up if we understand the difference uh, about, uh, between primary and secondary causes in the universe. Let's talk about that. Everyone stay with me, class. You still with me? Wake up, poke someone. Okay, don't slide, don't, don't slide, slide down in your chair here. I know it's only first period, but um, see if you can hang with me here. We have to understand some things about, uh, instead of seeing how God is the author of nature and the mind behind the orderliness of the laws of the universe and such in the natural world, somehow so many, even Christians today, see God and the natural world and its processes as somehow in conflict or opposition to each other. So if something has a natural explanation that can be explained through science and physical material things, then we say, oh, well, God had nothing to do with it. That's sciencey stuff. And if God is said to be the cause of something, well, then that's a miracle. That's supernatural and nothing to do with the natural order of things. And this is just ridiculous and wrong and damaging. And following that reasoning, by the way, leads us to the place where you can only find God in those areas that science can't explain. The gaps of our understanding, this is so-called God of the gaps, where we fall short, can't explain it to science and say, well, it must be God, throw the God card out. But as soon as science figures it out and explains it, well, then that gap is closed, and then God is chased out of that space, and pretty soon Dawkins says, you won't need God anymore. In fact, we can go there now. But this is all wrong, and it's not what Christians believe at all. Christians believe that God is the author of nature, and that nature itself is a work of God, and you see God in it all, and in the natural processes that science discovers, describes, and measures. The distinction here is primary and secondary causality. Stay with me, class. If you don't get this, you'll be stumped by the, the trouble between religion and, and science. Stephen Barr helped me on this with an analogy. He says, let's talk about a play, one of, one of the, a play called Hamlet. Who wrote Hamlet? Okay, a very small group of us huh? I knew the answer to that. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, all right? And in the play, the character Hamlet does something to the character Polonius. Who knows what, ha what, what, did, what did Hamlet do to Polonius? Yeah, well, a couple of you knew that too. He kills him. He stabs him with a dagger. Here's a portrait picturing that scene from the fourth act of Hamlet. Now, why did Polonius die? Was it? Did Polonius die because Hamlet stabbed him? Or did Polonius die because that's the way Shakespeare wrote the play? How many, go ahead and raise your hand, if you think Polonius died because Hamlet stabbed him. Go ahead and raise your hand. If your hand's not being raised right now, you're wrong because that's exactly why he died. Hamlet stabbed him. Raise your hand if you think Polonius died because Shakespeare wrote the play that way. Go ahead and raise your hand now, and you can vote twice. Some of you need to vote twice to make up for you not voting last November, by the way. Anyway, you can vote twice on this because both are causes. They're just different causes at different levels. In the play, Hamlet is the cause, the reason Polonius died. He's the lower story, the, the secondary cause, the horizontal cause. But Shakespeare is the vertical cause in the upper story, the one who is the primary cause. He's the reason there is a play. He's the one who thought up the characters. He's the one behind the whole plot. You see, there's no conflict. And this is how it is with our universe. Natural causes in the universe 
are called secondary causes. And this is the stuff of the lower horizontal story that scientists explore. But behind these things, God is the cause of the universe and has written the, he's the author of the universe and the cause not within the natural world. He's the cause of the natural world. The author of the story. So whether you want to talk about gravity, what caused the apple to fall, what caused the ocean to move, what causes the planets to spin, whether you want to talk about photosynthesis, how is it that light is converted to energy that makes a plant grow, how is it that we can talk about quantum mechanics or, or thermodynamics or the intricate mathematics of, of uh, Newtonian physics and how species evolve and all of these things, do I have to choose between the natural processes of the world or can I say that God created and governed the universe you can vote twice. It's not Hamlet or Shakespeare. God is the God of the author of the universe and he creates and governs anything any way he wants. What about the existence of God? I've heard someone say that you can't prove God exists. Uh-oh, now I'm scared. Is that true? That is true. You can't prove God exists. Not through science. No way. Not really anyway. You can't prove it in that sense. It's not something that fits in the realm of science. So, by the way, a scientist who says something about science, you might want to listen, especially if a whole bunch of them say it. But a scientist, or even a bunch of them, that say God doesn't exist has about the same authority as, say, Beyonce or Jimmy Fallon or your mail carrier. I mean, you, they might be good at what they do, but you don't have any obligation to listen to them about religion or God because science can't answer questions about God. And so to say that because science can't measure and prove God and God's existence and therefore God's not real or worth talking about is just silly. You can't measure love. You can't measure fear. That doesn't mean they're not real or important. Think of all the literature in the world, all the art, you know, family life, romance. You can't prove any of it scientifically. It's just not because it's not important or real. It's just a different sphere than science. Well, how do I know, you might say. How do I know there's a God? I want to, can sign, how do I really know? Well, you don't. It's called faith. Now, it's reasonable faith, as we talked last week. It's based on historically verifiable eyewitness accounts that millions and millions have attested through the years. And beyond that, Christian faith makes sense of the scientific data in ways that make sense. And beyond that, it does what science cannot. It provides meaning and hope and purpose and joy. And all the longings of the human heart are met in Christ. But none of that's science. It's faith. And by the way, I don't care who you are, atheist or Christian, it takes faith. Everyone believes something. It takes as much faith or maybe more to believe there is no God. When you look at a universe like ours, with all of its complexity, all of its beauty, all the logic of interacting laws, all the sophisticated mathematics behind it all, it simply makes no sense that it would be the result of chance collision and randomness. It only makes sense that if there were some higher being, some creative intelligence, some purpose or author behind it all, and God's revelation from the beginning to the end puts all that together and it makes perfect sense. The one who directs the paths of protons and planets and people is the author of the universe. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. 
You've set your glory above the heavens. And when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what are human beings and mere mortals that you would care about us? And yet you've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory. You may not feel like much today. You might have came in here discouraged, feeling like an infinitesimally small, insignificant speck of cosmic dust. Nobody knows or cares really what's going on with you. And you may feel the whole world is just a a random, out-of-control mess of nothingness with no purpose or hope. And let me just tell you that the revelation of God says, no, 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 there's an author and there's a story and there's meaning and there is hope and you are not an accident. You are on purpose and you are loved. And you can't measure that love in a test tube, but you can see it. In Jesus Christ, when God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that anyone on the planet who would believe in him could have eternal life. And eternal life, you can't measure that in a test tube either, but our hearts long for it. Jesus promises us that it's real. And the experience of millions of people have found the echoing affirmation through countless years of history that You can trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Friends, listen. There's so many questions we still don't have answers to. That's okay. You're human. Science is beautiful and wonderful from the beginning to the end and it doesn't threaten our belief in God. It deepens and enhances it. As you learn more about the world, you don't, have to, you don't have to have more doubt about God. It can deepen your worship of God. I'm going to invite you to turn to a, to a worshiping creature of the Creator right now. All creatures of our God and King, lift your voice and sing. Will you do that? Will you turn your voice, lift your soul? You can't measure your soul, but God knows your soul. Will you turn your soul to the Lord? I'm gonna, we're going to play a simple song, simple song. But I want you to think about the words, about nature, about science, about your life, and give worship to the God who knows you. Will you sing with me if I try to get us started? If you don't know the words, you come along with me. Sing with me. Oh, Lord, my God, when I probably never sung or not thought about much let's sing another verse and just let these words be your worship when through the woods 
Let yourself fall mute and humble before a God of all nature and creation who's there from the beginning all the way to the end. Now, we haven't talked about the end yet. We just talked about the beginning. Well, let's, let's let Luke handle that. Luke, you got something? We'll try. We'll try. We interrupt this beautiful moment to bring you a word on the end times. Um, <laughs> and to bring this out. It makes me nervous to talk about this. So I, is my head in the camera after focusing on Ben for so long? I just wanted to make sure if you can see. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, a lot of people asked a, lot of people asked a question, something like this. How about a series on the end times or Revelation? And I'm kind of like, yeah, how about a series on that? Because I have 12 minutes to talk about it. Uh, we actually have done that before. It's called What's the World Coming to in February, March of 2010. It'll be available on our website. We've also taught on it before in our group's office. They have a great DVD about how to understand Revelation. Maybe helpful to you. Uh, some other resources I think we can put on the screen, uh, some books, Revelations, Rhapsody, Unholy Allegiances, relatively brief books that will help get you started. Also, Surprised by Scripture, N.T. Wright, will help not just with Revelation, but also beginnings and Genesis stuff as well. And then, of course, trusty Bible handbook that we talked about last week. All right, so we're, we're going to have to do some work uh, beyond just today if we're going to really kind of get into this and get the most out of our study. Uh, people ask this question. Uh, Stephanie said, and plenty of others did as well, are we living in the end times? All right. Let me answer that with a very cheeky answer. Are we living in the end times? Yes. And we have been for the last 2,000 years. All right. Here's how the Bible invites us to think about the end times, or what in my Bible is translated as last days in Acts chapter 2. That's when the Holy Spirit came, and it was this magnificent display, and everybody's wondering what in the world is going on. And then Peter stood up and he addressed the crowd and he said, this is what's happening. This is the thing that was told about in uh, the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Later, Peter writes a letter in 1 Peter and he says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him. So Peter seems to think that Jesus' resurrection marked the beginning of what the Bible calls these last days. And here's how the Bible encourages us to think, as if we're living sort of in an in-between time. Now, certainly some things were 
completed in Jesus, but also some things were begun in his death, resurrection, ascension, and the giving of his Holy Spirit to empower the church. That has happened and has begun this new age. God fulfilled that promise. There's another promise. When Jesus will return to fulfill God's plans in an ultimate way, that hasn't happened. So we find ourselves between, in the time between those times. And all of the New Testament is written to people who experience some things that are now. Uh, God's promise of forgiveness and new life, those, those are real for us now, but there's some things that are not yet. So we live in this now, not yet reality. And as to the when of that time when God will fulfill his promise, we can't know. That's what the Bible says. All all throughout, it affirms, just like in 1 Thessalonians 5, brothers and sisters, about the times and days. We don't need to write to you about that. You already know. The day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. So we can say we're closer to that time than we were yesterday. But that's really all that the Bible gives us. And everyone who has tried to make the Bible give us more than that, all throughout history, you know what they have in common? They're wrong. They've been wrong. Now you might say, well, what about Matthew 24 or Mark 13 or Luke 21 where Jesus talks about the signs of the times and wars and rumors and wars and so forth? Well, three real quick things. Number one, he talks about those events as being like false labor, okay? Baby isn't coming yet. Those are just signs of, of false labor. Number two, at least some and maybe all of what is being talked about in those places has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, something that has already happened, not talking about end times. Scholars will disagree about how much is referring to that versus the second coming, um, and maybe that's up for your study. But regardless, at the end, Jesus calls up that same imagery of thief in the night. We don't know. The Bible says we can't know the when of when it's going to happen. All right, But, of course, the punchline is be ready for it. Right? So that's a little bit about that. Let me move on to a next question. It says, what are the end times prophecies that are important to understand in light of where we are in God's plan today? It's a very good question. Um, it's important to know some things about that ultimate act. What is God up to when he acts finally in the world? Well, I think we can pull out from the scriptures at least, at least three things. Number one, God wins. Okay? God's way ends up to be uh, victorious, and all of those who follow him will be victorious. Now, in the Bible, that functions in at least a couple ways. One, it's a word of hope, right? To people who are slugging it out and feeling like they're being beaten down and they don't feel like they're winning. It says, no, hang in there, hold on to Jesus, because in the end, God does win. And it also can function as a prophetic word to people who, maybe also like us, are tempted, who are allured by another way to look at things like fame and power and pleasure and wealth, to think, you know what, that's the key to the good life. The people who have those things certainly look like they're winning right now. But what the Bible communicates is, no, that's a path that comes to an end. It leads to destruction, and everyone grasping for those things will go down with those things. But those who now submit to Jesus as Lord and, and live under his reign, regardless of what it seems like right now, those are the people who get invited into a new life to live in God's new world. So hold on to Jesus. God's way wins. It endures. Another thing that's important to know is that God will bring his renewal project to completion. New heavens 
and new earth. That's what Isaiah talked about, promised that way back in the Old Testament. That's what Revelation calls up that image and says, God's new heaven and new earth is coming to reality. We talked about creation today. Now we're talking about new creation to fix all that is broken in the world and in us. God, on a cosmic scale, creates, and, and, and then in the midst of the brokenness, he creates new creation. He does the same for us. He makes new creation of me. All of the brokenness and sin that riddles me, God makes me into a new creation, and he invites me to live in his new world. Another thing that is important to know is that when the Lord comes, he comes as judge. He just does. That's who he is. There is a choice to be made. Again, you can go this way. You can compromise with the culture and make other things your Lord and grasp on to other things that you think are important that will deliver on the good life. Or you can trust the promises of God and latch on to him. And we are judged. We are called into account before the one who created the world and who fulfills his plan for the world and who created us. We are called into account. And that's why it's important to think about the punchline. Every time the Bible talks about that ultimate thing that God is going to do, it says things like, repent, be ready, stand firm, hold on, persevere, continue in the way, continue in Him. Purify yourself. Encourage one another with these words. Be self-controlled. Live holy and godly. Don't compromise. Don't go the way of the culture. And be alert. Be awake. And here's the good news. Everyone, no matter if we disagree on how the end times is going to play out or our interpretation of Revelation, everyone can agree on those punchlines. What are we supposed to do in light of the fact that God is bringing his plan to fulfillment? How then are we supposed to live? We can all agree on that. Okay? Still with me? Let me say a word about Revelation, okay? Um, Just a word or two. Uh, Someone asked this question, why is Revelation so obscure? Uh, Andy asked that question. And trust me, he's not the only one asking that question. We are all asking that question. What in the world do I do with Revelation? Uh, Maybe some of us are staying away from it just because we don't know. Uh, Let me say a few things to maybe uh, whet your appetite and push you downhill into your own further study of the book. Okay, number one, it's apocalyptic literature. You all read apocalyptic literature maybe before you came to church today? No, probably not. You probably don't spend a lot of time in there, right? It's a certain genre, a certain type of writing. And there's other kinds of that writing in the Bible, Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah and other writings. So you've got to kind of get familiar with that world. You also have to be very familiar with the Old Testament to understand Revelation when it brings up these images and uh, it's borrowing a lot from the Old Testament that are kind of foreign to us. But for, for the folks that were reading it the first time, those were like pop culture references. But now it's ancient for us. It's not our pop culture. But listen to this. Okay, if I said uh, the baby bears hoisted the golden ring of flags, breaking the curse and bringing joy to the Windy City, what am I saying? What am I saying? The Cubs won the World Series. The Cubs won the World Series. Okay? Is there any doubt about what I'm saying? No, the Cubs won the World Series. Or I just got this when I put the order on this morning. On the back of my Old Spice, it says... 
contains odor-fighting atomic robots that shoot lasers at your stench monsters and replaces them with fresh, clean, masculine scent elves. What is it saying? Makes your armpits smell good. Right? That's what it's saying. Apocalyptic literature right on the back of Old Spice. There you go. All right? So, those images... Now, imagine this washed up on shore in Madagascar 200 years from now. They're going to be... Oh, my... You know, so that's kind of how we discover Revelation. Oh, my goodness. All right? Those images in Revelation can be discovered and be less obscure with a little work, but we've got to do that work. All right, that's kind of related to the next point, is that Revelation was written to people in the first century living in the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It was written to them first. A lot of times we go to Revelation and say, oh, it's talking all about us. No, no, no. It had a first audience just like the rest of the Bible. It was written and addressed to seven specific churches, people in those churches. In chapters 2 and 3, you'll discover... And they had their own challenges, namely, they're suffering persecution and they're facing the temptations of wealth and, and to go that other way and compromise with culture. And it was trying to speak to them. And so in that way, we, kind of, we understand it just like we do the rest of the Bible and we treat it the same way. All of the Bible was written to specific people. And as we observe their context and God's word of truth and hope and encouragement to them, as we understand what that meant, then we can say some things about our context and then hear God's word of truth and hope and encouragement to us. And Revelation has all of those things and it's a beautiful and wonderful word to us, but first it was a word to them, all right? Uh, third thing to note, uh, and maybe kind of get toward the end with this, Revelation contains a series of visions, a series of visions. Both of those are important words. Let me say something about series. Now, I like to read things, and you probably like to read things that, that go chronologically, right? You, something happens, and then the next thing, and that, it just unfolds in a sequence of, of events. Revelation, uh, chronology is not a value in apocalyptic literature, and it's certainly not with Revelation. So you see a series of visions. That might be a vision, and it says, after this I saw, and it describes a vision. Then I saw, describes a vision. Then I saw, describes a vision. Well, it's not organized chronologically. So we can't put a point on a timeline every time it says, then I saw. It's like it looks at something, and then it shifts the camera lens, and it looks again. And then it zooms in, and it looks at the same thing again. And so we have to understand that as we're encountering uh, these visions. And about visions. Um, yes, we're going to have to do some work to kind of get up with the, uh, the language and the imagery and the numbers that are used. But visions all throughout apocalyptic literature, aren't meant to function in a way that the thing they describe plays out exactly like what they describe in history. Okay? So visions were meant to mean something, but they, weren't, they don't mean that the thing they describe is exactly how it's going to play out when you observe it in history. So, when it says, Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Well, that's actually stock imagery. Beasts in apocalyptic literature, symbol for nations. Uh, the sea, stock imagery for evil or chaos. It's trying to say something about the character of that nation. Namely, it's, it's in opposition to God and his people. So it doesn't mean that literally a beast is going to come out of the sea. Although, you know, if you're at the ocean and your kid's playing a little too close for comfort, you, you know, maybe want to bring that up and, and try to get them to come away from there. Um, but that's visions. We get visions of Jesus when you first open Revelation. It's this magnificent vision. Or we get thrust into God's throne room and there's loud peals of thunder and rainbows and emeralds and rubies. It's trying to just say, God is magnificent. He's brilliant. 
We can't even describe it. We try to put it into words. We're doing the best we can, but God is amazing when you encounter him. We don't have to quibble about exactly how God's throne room is organized, okay? That's what a vision is like. And that's maybe a good place to kind of uh, bring this brief overview to a close, is thinking about God and the character of God. Because I hope you will encounter the book of Revelation in a deeper way. I hope you'll study it. I hope you'll get some tools. Uh, actually, my group, my guys' group is going through it right now, and we're, we're unpacking and discovering a beautiful word and a hopeful word, not just doomsday prophecy, but a hopeful word of truth to us in our place as we learn more about it. But more than that, get to know the God behind the word, the Jesus who speaks that letter to, the, to, to John while he's on the island. Get to know that Jesus and encounter him in all of his beauty and brilliance and enter into worship of him because Revelation, if it wants to do anything, it invites us to worship the God behind the letter, the God who created the whole thing, who sustains it and brings it to its glorious fulfillment, creation, a new creation. We're invited to live with God in his new world. We need to know that God. Amen. Amen. From beginning to end. We started by saying in the beginning, God. Luke's reminding us. It says in the end, God. That's what I think the book of Revelation, that's actually uh, it's chapter 1 verse 8 says, uh, in, uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is right now. And who was in the beginning. And who is to come at the end of time. God isn't going anywhere. And he wants to be the God, not just of the universe, but the God of our lives. That Alpha and Omega, are you familiar with that? It's uh, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. God's saying, I'm your A to Z. I'm beginning to end. I, I, am, I am everything. And I'll always be there. And I think it's important for us to realize that it's not just a God of the cosmos we're talking about, a God of these big sweeping revelations Luke's reminded us about, but a God who wants to be the Lord of your life and mine. You can put your life into the hands of the one who holds the whole cosmos in his hands and trust him. And I hope that you'll do that today, your whole life from beginning to end. You know, we sang that song... Um, what was the name of it? Uh, how great thou art. How great thou art. Thank you. I was paying attention. Thank you. We didn't sing the last verse, but we could have, because here's what it says. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy will fill my heart. And then I shall bow in humble adoration and proclaim, my God, how great you are. For that day to happen in a beautiful way for you and me, it begins even now as we trust the Lord with all of our heart and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I invite you to do that. I invite you to do that. I invite you to stand as we get ready to close. Um, if you'd like to talk with someone, pray with someone at any of our campuses, just go to the front where you'll meet one of the campus pastors or one of the other leaders who will just meet you and pray with you. If you're a guest, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We have a thing called MI5. Come right down front or at the different campuses to the areas designated so you can uh, receive a gift and hear about Mountain in five minutes. We'd love to meet you in that way. Next week, what do we talk about next week, Luke? I think politics, uh, Israel, and how to deal with difficult people. Oh, okay. I if think, that would ever happen to I anyone. I think I'm I busy. Uh, 
Let me leave you with these words from Revelation, the last page of the Bible, chapter 21. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. May you drink deeply from that spring this week. See you next week. God bless.